253, Chapter 7 of Gulliver's Travels. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 253, Spin You. This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative. We publish books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? And Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. Well, hello! I hope your week was a good one. I'm honestly, I'm shocked that it has been a week already. It has been a busy one. And as you know, when life is busy, life goes quickly. And uh, and no exception here. However, no hospital visits, <laughs> no stitches, a couple of bangs and scrapes. But, you know, I have two boys, so... And it's warming up and kids are outside. Warming up, she says, at the end of May. Because the weather here in Nova, which is Northern Virginia, has been so odd. I don't know if it has been this odd for everyone, but we really had very cool, like lightweight sweater cool weather until um, until this week. And then this week, we've actually had nothing but thunderstorms. So, whatever. Good thunderstorms too, you know, really rumbly flashes of light. You should probably be turning off the computer kind of thunderstorms. And then today it was supposed to be sunny and it is once again cloudy. And I am not complaining about that. It's really quite wonderful because my, because I'm not squinting is I think what it comes down to. When it's sunshiny, I squint. And who is that good for? No one, no one at all. But ooh, I have such lovely information for you. Uh, the first thing is the title of the podcast, Spin You, is not me being offensive, or not me being merely offensive. It is the part of the name of a place where I will be teaching this summer, Knit One, Spin You. I will be teaching my massive Sock Summit 09 Sock Heels class, and a beginning spindle and a beginning spinning wheel class. So, all of those classes I will be teaching over the weekend of, she said, looking at her calendar so that she makes sure to get you guys the right actual dates. The weekend of July 27th, I will be at Hofstra University on Long Island, which you may be familiar with, and uh, and I will be I will be teaching Lauren Hyken, who you may know from. Oh, she's been everywhere forever. Uh, she worked with Sanguine Griffin. She's done tons of stuff. She's a marvelous and very fun person. And she has, in a fit of insanity, because I cannot think of another reason to do this, organized this weekend class out on Long Island. So it'll... Um, there should be a nice breeze. We are, I think, in the dorms. It should be quite pleasant and fun. And it means you know, we all kind of live in the same place and we eat in the same place and we hang out in the same place. So I'd get to spend a weekend with you. And to make it even more fun, I am not the only person teaching. Uh, we have some really, really great 
teachers who will be there accompanying all of us. And oh, what fun. So I have linked to this from the show notes. I have also linked to this from the Craftlet newsletter. I'm starting to get a feel for what goes out in the newsletter, which is kind of an infrequent thing, but it goes out in the newsletter and, and what goes out to subscribers. Because one of the things that has occurred to me looking at numbers and things is because so many of you, I know you listen in the car and I accompany you on your way to and from work. So hello, <laughs> hello, those of you who are in the car going to work. Um, you're not at a computer and you shouldn't be looking at the screen of your smartphone anyway because you're driving. So I now understand that there, there are going to be certain times that I mention things like some of the things in today's podcast where it would behoove me to get that information to you via email when I know that it's, you know, not just fun information like, oh, and there's this funny picture of a guy peeing from 1823 in a different version of Gulliver's Travels, but useful information like here's a class you can go to. Here's a new audio book you may want. You can hear me heading in towards the next thing. Um, that's the kind of thing that I'm going to start putting into the newsletter. And signups for the newsletter are free. And if you look at the craftlit.com site, <laughs> here I am telling you, you need to go and do something. Sorry about that. If you go to craftlit.com in the upper right sidebar, there is a sign up for the free newsletter. If you do remember to go to the site, at least remember to do that. And, uh, and then all of this stuff will, will come to you in your inbox. And, uh, and I do not give away or sell any emails. I hate it when that happens to me and I would never do that to you. So yes, knit one, spin you, take classes with me this summer. I am so excited about this. It's a trip and it's fun and I get to teach and I get to teach spindle and I get to teach wheel spinning. I haven't decided which wheel to take with me yet. It's tricky. I have two choices. I have a Louette hat box, which I have fixed and which I can use. Or I have my Majacraft gem. I will probably bring the gem just because it has more adaptations and it's easier to, to do big projects with. But that is neither here nor there. What is here? is the information. The other information I wanted to get to you is Sign Mitchell, who you may recall from Weavecast and from the Frankenhood design in What Would Madame Defarge Knit Volume 1, the brilliant, may I just say this, design where you make a Frankenhood that looks like the Frankenstein hat uh, head from, from the 1930s movies. And then when you snap the snaps closed on the Frankenhood. It, there are instructions for e-textile work. And when you snap the snaps closed, it lights up the neck bolts. That's the genius of Sign Mitchell. Well, she's done something new and genius for all of you. She has taken Linda Ligon's book, This Is How I Go When I Go Like This, and she has made an audiobook version of it with new essays that are exclusive to the audiobook. I am putting a link to that in the show notes and a link to that in the next newsletter so that you have easy access to Sign's website and that particular audiobook. I'm very excited. This is a much beloved book and I'm, I'm so happy for Sign and for Linda and everybody else involved. 
And how, you may ask, did I find out about this? Because I signed up for a science newsletter 100,000 years ago. And, uh, and so I'm very excited. That is really cool. I also have, let's see, the very first chapter of Cool for Cats went out to the uh, supporter subscribers last weekend. Chapter two is going to go out this weekend. I have started audio work on Canterbury Tales. So that's all stuff that's that's heading out to uh, to people who've subscribed to the podcast, and and next week I will have the drawing for the Madame Defarge Political Action Committee T-shirt for people who donate in any fashion to the podcast during the month of May, well April or May, two thousand twelve. Ooh, and aside from you know just general crafty stuff to do with the kids to keep them out of trouble. I have been working on a new design for Dragonfly Fibers. Have you met Kate? Have you met Dragonfly Fibers? Her yarns are so scrumptious. I love them. I really love them. And I am particularly in love with a yarn called Super Genie, and it's spelled super, S-U-P-E-R. And then Genie, she spells D-J-I-N-N-I, which I think is actually the original spelling of Genie. And it is a merino cashmere nylon blend. I am knitting it a full four needle sizes smaller than the recommended size because I am making socks. And these are the most amazing socks. I am not going to tell you the name of these socks yet. And I'm not going to tell you their purpose because they have a very specific purpose. But I am going to tell you this. In honor of these socks and this colorway called Red Bud, I had to listen to an audiobook by Truman Capote, a brief audiobook, a lovely audiobook, and one that perhaps Audrey Hepburn might have been associated with <laughs> in some small way, and George Papard, and sadly Mickey Rooney, which is just tragic. But the socks are marvelous. And very, very soon I will have more information for you on how you can get a hold of that pattern. But oh, I am so excited about this one. It's really fun. So that's been that's been my craftiness this week is figuring out math, really, actually. And um, and oh yes, if any of you are interested in test and or sample knitting, as I move into the next Defarge book, we are going to need more uh, more people for that. And um, I can tell you more about the process now that I now that I understand the process better, and I am more aware of all of the kind of the ramifications and, and permutations, I can explain the whole process much better to you as well. So if you are interested, drop me an email at heather at craftlit.com and I will send you the 411 and hook you up with patterns and knitting and yarn and things like that. And today I have a promised special interview for you. I had a chance to sit down this week and talk with Tara Swiger, and some of you know her from her yarns at Blonde Chicken Boutique. Now, she, she usually sells at craft shows, and then she sells directly to local yarn stores. So if you know anything about how marvelous her yarns are, talking to your local yarn store is the way to get them to you fastest. She has marvelous newsletters. She has lots of good information. But the other thing is she... She had to kind of, in a hurry, make her yarn business profitable enough to support her family. And, and this is a few years ago. And so the, the processes that she went through were interesting and 
kind of unique and specific to someone in the crafting world. Whether whether you're a quilter or a knitter or a spinner or a dyer or a weaver or a potter. Hey, Jenny. Um, running a business in a crafty world that requires things like going to things like Maryland Sheep and Wool and marketing online when people can't touch your stuff online, things like that. Um, it requires a whole different set of thinking, and it's not the kind of thinking that you're necessarily going to find in an M MBA program or MBA or marketing book. And so Tara started uh, a year ago a thing called Starship, which is kind of like a, a long-term ongoing online classroom and sandbox kind of thing where you can get together with other people who are doing other kinds of crafty things and talk to them and talk to Tara and get advice from them and advice from Tara. And then Tara puts up onto the site information, essays, classes, audio, whatever materials she thinks we need next. And the opportunities to learn from really clever other people and to grow from the experience of having a safe place to go and talk to people about building a business is it's a marvelous idea and it is something full disclosure that i joined earlier this year and it's really been a marvelous experience and i wanted to share i wanted to share tara with you because i think in this economy especially she said deeply meaningfully mournfully i think it's important I know a lot of listeners who are at home by choice, who are sometimes restless and sometimes disconcerted about not having a job that brings in money. And, and just in case something has been percolating at the back of your head, I thought it might be nice for you to get a chance to listen to, to Tara's story and, uh, and a little bit about her new book, which has come out from Cooperative Press called Market Yourself. And, uh, and I've read the book, and it is marvelous. So, without any further ado, here is Tara. When you were growing up, did you imagine yourself becoming a marketing maven <laughs> for the rest of the crafty world? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not even a little bit. I, um, you know, my degree's in French, so there were, like, six years, you know, in high school and then in college where I thought I was going to uh, be a French professor. And uh, when I was younger, I really, I w my whole family's crafty. And my mom and my grandma both constantly say, when you see something in the store, we can make that. <laughs> and then they were also always saying, after they would make something, we could have a business making this. And they haven't uh, still. <laughs> and I remember being so frustrated with that and thinking, I'm not going to say that until I'm actually ready to start a business with something. So that was always in my mind that like that was a possibility, but I thought it was crazy to just say over and over, I could start a business with this and not actually like move forward with it. So yeah. the seeds were planted way back then. Well, and how nice to have a completely crafty family. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah. So were you, you know, well, you've, you've put, you've put on your blog that you're you quit your day job mm -hmm. and then you almost immediately had to start supporting your family. Right. Which I was mostly supporting us before any. That's a pretty yeah. brave move. <laughs> well, also, I mean, I was really miserable in the office. I do not do well with, uh, 
schedules <laughs> and like imposed rules and the office um, was very formal and and I had to dress up every day and as you can see I'm not into that <laughs> so it was it was really hard um, like on a daily basis felt absolutely awful about myself and about what I was doing and about everything so the yarn company Blanche and Boutique was kind of like my savior nights and weekends I could work on it and not feel awful and feel like I had some control over some part of my life. And so quitting to do that full time was like, it was scary because I like, like financial stability, (laughs) but it wasn't scary as in it was like leaving awfulness for what could be great. Right. So that seemed like a pretty straightforward decision. So you say schedules were not your favorite thing. Yeah. Yet. (laughs) <laughs> One of the things that you talk about in, in your book and at Starship is kind of pl- plotting, plotting your future both as a map mm-hmm. early on in the process and then and kind of a personal, you know, follow the yellow brick road map. And then later on you talk about uh, calendarizing certain things, specifically marketing things that you need to, you need to be thinking ahead for um, yeah. in order to keep, to keep your people, your right people happy. And yeah. And enjoying themselves. Did you find that that was a difficult thing to move from? Was it simply the move from somebody else's schedule to your own schedule that was easy for you? Or was it not easy at all? (laughs) Yes, uh, it wasn't. I mean, like, like no part of this was easy at the time. But looking back, it seems obvious the Mm. decisions that you like that you can't just wake up each day and start like, well, we'll see what marketing I'll do today. Like there, I needed a list. And this is actually something I picked up when I was um, working nights and weekends on the yarn company while working at the day job is I was reading endlessly. And I realized that uh, I would, could be more effective if I knew what I was going to do for the business each day. So that's really where my like own little marketing plan started was a daily. And at the time it was like, add a photo of a new yarn to Flickr, um, comment on some photos on Flickr's to like be part of that community. Cause this is before Twitter. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, right. And, and then add a new yarn to the shop each day. And then that necessitated making at least five yarns a week so that I would have five new yarns to add to the shop for each of the weekdays. And then there was like, um, so all of that uh, kind of helped me figure out my own schedule instead of just going at it like, I don't know what to do in my business today, so I'll just do this first thing in front of me. So that schedule... But that I always let be flexible because if I start to feel like it's what's telling me what to do and that I like live by the schedule, I get weirdly obsessive and I work too hard and then I reject it and I rebel from it and then I don't work at all. So I found for me, like I need to have a, um, my friend Kareen who talks all about business systems or systems for small businesses. She talks about things having containers. And so that like daily list is a container. I know that I'm going to do something within that list each day. But so it holds that space and that time for me to work on my business. Mm -hmm. If I left it totally open, then I would just do my dishes instead of working on my business. Do the (laughs) dishes? (laughs) Right now they're really hassling me. Um, (laughs) They're over there like weighing on my mind. Right. I would just do stuff that wasn't. Uh, supportive of my business in order to avoid it if I didn't know what I had to do each day because I'm a person that. 
I don't like other people's structures, but if I don't have at least some idea of where to start, it gets overwhelming and I don't know where to start. And it's actually, that's where the book came from is wanting, um, because, because people work in all different ways and some people want to know exactly what to do each day and they want a clear path to follow. And then other people like me just want some ideas of things to kind of hold the space around it, but then they'll decide what to do when they come to it, but they just need a time each day to work on their business. So I wanted there to be a clear path to follow, but then you can choose your own adventure on that path. So you can decide which area you're going to work on and what things you're going to add to your own list. And you make your own list. You know, I don't make a daily marketing list for you at the end of the chapter. At the end of the book, there's uh, just a big, you know, blank pages <laughs> for you to make your own list. The, the choose your own adventure uh, aspect to it is something that I found really attractive because I've, uh, I'm, I've always been terrified of business stuff <laughs> in general. And marketing is just, to me, a subset of the terror. And <laughs> one of the things that I found so compelling about what you are up to was that I, I felt that on some almost undefinable level, you were going to understand. If I read your book, I was going to find out that you understood me and my needs and my weird little niche mm-hmm. in, in, this, in this larger crafting world. And I think that that's one of the things that makes people really devoted to you and, <laughs> you know, and feel like you're really accessible because mm-hmm. you, speak, you speak these two languages very, very well, the, the craft world language and also the marketing language in a way that doesn't make you go you. Yeah. Well, that's really, that's, that's where it all came from is realizing once I, once I left my day job and I was doing this stuff on my own, um, the people that would come up to me at craft shows and be like, how did you do this? You have to tell me how you do this. I remember one couple in particular, they were like, this is your full-time job. How is that possible? I need this so badly. And yet they didn't want to talk about anything to do with actual business. Like, a lot of their issues were like the soft issues as opposed to the hard, like uh, accounting. It was more like, I just don't even feel good about business. I don't even want to talk about, you know, making money. (laughs) And so like the more and more people I talked to like that, I was like, well, uh, we need to talk about this like publicly, you know? And so I started blogging about it more and then talking to people on Twitter about it. And I, I mean, and and the whole the whole world has changed a lot since then, like three years ago. And now there are lots of people talking about like it's okay to be an artist and make money, but at the time there was just there was nothing. And so I just keep having conversations with people about about the things that they're afraid of and the things that they're excited about. And I try to show that you can take that enthusiasm and put it in this container of marketing, but it doesn't have to look like the marketing you're thinking of. Like you do not have to act like a a wall street guy in order to make money and you don't have to feel like push, push, push and um, work, work, work hear everyone buy my crap in order to sell your crap. (laughs) (laughs) No, not your crap, your wonderful stuff. And so that, uh, I just, just, I like talking about that and I get excited about it. And I actually really love, uh, businessy stuff. Like I started an MBA program because where I worked was, a, um, 
a state university and they had a program where the employees could take classes for free. So I got accepted into their MBA program, but I ended up leaving the job before I finished the program. And it was so focused on big business. Like they were preparing you to be a manager, like a mid-level manager too, not even like a CEO. <laughs> so I thought, I don't want to be a mid-level manager of some like paper company. I like, the office. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> there was no entrepreneurial anything in any of the classes. So, um, so I stopped that, but I, but I like, I love the marketing class. I even pretty much liked the accounting classes. And so I like, I feel that people who see themselves as artists or creatives can think about business, but they don't have to think about big business. You know, there's gotta be a way to take that and apply it to your own creative passion, you know, and that's, that's what excites me. Well, and it seems like part of, part of your attitude, which I really appreciated in the book too, was that your, your approach to the world of marketing felt crafty. You know, (laughs) you're looking at it as a creative adventure of figuring out how to get your stuff in front of your right people more quickly, right. more efficiently, and in interesting ways that match you. Right. And it's I, kind of it's kind of like the ultimate craft project. It's like the meta craft project, right? So you make your individual stuff, but then your business is your bigger craft project yes. that you're working on. And I don't know if I ever thought about it like that. I love that she said that because that excites me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes it sound a lot less scary. Like that might be that might be the new way I talk about it. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> No, it's it's true, and it's also you know, you have you have your your starship program, which which to me is is kind of like if uh, if market yourself is a is a paper book, then your starship program is an audio video interactive game <laughs> version of market yeah. yourself, where people get to talk to you and ask questions, and also talk to you and ask questions of each other. Mm-hmm. And it's not surprising to me that the people who you've attracted to Starship are people who are also really clever and really interesting and really, really smart about about their thing mm-hmm. and and have also felt that same kind of hesitation. But it's such a supportive atmosphere. And it's it's one of one of the gifts that I think you have that you're you're able to look at where other people are at and see and see positives but also mm-hmm. see the challenges for what they are not mm-hmm. a big scary dragon but like no 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 if you start doing if you start down this road these are the things that you're going to encounter and these are the things you can do mm-hmm. and if you start down that road then these are the other things you can do right yeah oh, that's so good to hear i'm so glad and that's i mean what you said about the the clever smart creative people in the starship that is I, I mean, I knew it because I knew for the people that were taking my classes, I was like, I could see, I mean, that's the thing about teaching a class is that you can see all the individual students, but they can't see each other. Mm-hmm. And I really felt like that was um, something that was missing. It's like, if you could look around in the virtual classroom and see all the people there with you, you'd be so encouraged. And even when you're not asking your own questions, but you're listening on our weekly check-ins to other people's challenges or other people's successes, it, it, you can you can always apply that to your own business. You know, you can see that like somebody set a goal to buy a new laptop and this is how she's reaching it. Oh my goodness, I want to do that in my own business, but about buying my new spinning machine or something. And I I love that that way that it all that you guys can play off each other and then I learn from you guys each week. Like 
I just love to go and like read what you're doing because it gives me 500 new ideas for my own stuff. So it's, it's pretty awesome. (laughs) But that's the, that's like the number one concern in my mind when I created it is how do I create a place on the internet that is kind and compassionate and open so that if you want to be open, you know that you're not out there alone because we've all shown up open before. And, but also in that you get to decide how open you want to be and not everybody shares everything. Um, and people share various levels of openness with their own comfort, you know, and that is like, and, and, you know, there's that, um, the getting started thread where like, I, I kind of try to set the culture there so that you know what's expected of everyone else. So then, you know, you can be yourself. Yep. And, um, and I'm always like, the amazing thing is, is that everybody who comes to the starship is so awesome that I've never had to be like, Hey, you're being inappropriate. You know, I, there's never been anything. Everybody yeah. is being supportive and lovely. It's like, it, it was so this um, in two weeks is the anniversary of when it officially opened like to the public. And really the book market yourself is all of those classes then rewritten and put together in a, in like a path, you know, in a system from start to finish, because that's kind of the frustrating thing about just the, the library full of classes is you can find support wherever you need it, but if you don't know where to start, then you don't know where to start. Yeah. And so market yourself, like, says, start here, <laughs> you know, and then choose your own adventure as you go. Yeah. And that's that's what I felt like I needed is some cohesiveness to the whole thing. Where do you feel like <laughs> you fit into into the world right now, this kind of fraught, challenging place? I was actually, I think about this a lot because uh, I listen to the news a lot, and when people lose their jobs and they're doing a whole story about um, or NPR is doing a whole series in the morning of people who are taking care of their aging parents and grandparents living in the home with them and all the financial trouble and um, health insurance is just like ridiculous if you're self-employed. So, um, so where I think how I think how I see all of this going full time in a crafty business and expecting it to fill all of your financial needs from day one, is not advised <laughs> and also um, not logical, right? Because you need a regular base of customers supporting you in order to make regular recurring income. And you also need a whole line of products so that people can buy more than just one thing. So when people lose their jobs and then want to start a crafty business, I strongly encourage them <laughs> to get another side job, work part-time or, or, work, you know, 12 hour days on building your business because it doesn't just happen. Like they don't just appear. Your sales can't happen until you have products and your products can't happen until you spend tons of time making and perfecting and working on all the products. So it's not the answer to, I lost my job and I'm starting from scratch for a crafty business. But if you've been building one, it's an amazing insurance policy. Actually, when I quit my day job, I couldn't have just started working for myself if I hadn't spent the previous two years building up Blonde Chicken Boutique. So kind of where I see this crafty business marketing advice and conversations really is what I think about having with people not really advice because you have to apply it to your own business. I see that fitting in in that if you are at all nervous about your current job prospects, you've got a full-time job somewhere and you don't feel very safe there, starting a business based on something you love and working at it nights and weekends is an insurance policy that is also really invigorating. If you really are loving it 
it can fuel everything else that you're doing. And it can improve your life even though you're working way more hours than you would work just a day-to-day job. And then, so that, I mean, an insurance policy in this economy is always a good thing. So <laughs> I, I have like 500 thoughts about this, as you can tell. One of them is that it's a good insurance policy. The other one is that I still see crafty businesses growing. So that is definitely still happening. So you don't let it freak you out. But also, if you see that the people you've been selling to are now telling you, oh, my husband just lost his job. I just lost my job. I don't have any money anymore. Then you can rethink. And it doesn't mean you're going to ditch those people and never speak to them again. <laughs> but you can think, okay, so that's one person in this bigger group. What does the bigger group look like? What other people are like her but still have their jobs? So you just are constantly uh, iterating. Like it's an iterative process where you're looking at who your people are and what's changed in their life. And so what changes in your products? And then as your products grow, does that mean you're reaching a different group of people? And so you look at those people and you learn from them. So it makes it easier to market. And, and by market, I really mean have conversations with people about what they want and then give it to them. That is easier if you like those people. And if you don't like those people, then you can change it. <laughs> you can pick people that you like. You can get to know the people. And basically, though, like for all of us, since we make something that we love so much, the people who will love it will be like us in some way. The people who read my blog tend to be like um, craft business uh, dreamers, where the people who actually like buy the book and are in the starship actually need to have a business for it to make sense to them. So I'm thinking about both sets of people, you know, like go on and start that craft business because it will help you. And if you already have one, like if you already have one, I kind of feel like, and this might just be me, but I feel like you're kind of in a cushion. The economy won't affect you the same way. Yeah. Because, because you can change so quickly. Whereas if you have a job, they can just fire you and then you're screwed. Yeah. If you have a, uh, multiple products and multiple customers, then you, even if one of them loses their job, you haven't lost your only stream of income or that's not a sustainable business. <laughs> so like that multiple, and of course, you know me, I like to do 50 different projects at a time. So that multiplicity means that I have a stability, um, even though it doesn't always feel like it because I don't ever know which one is going to give me money. <laughs> but that multiplicity, uh, is it, every new stream is like a new cushion you know, against whatever is out there. <laughs> no, it's that kind of diversification. Thing, yeah. But it's all still part of you, which makes it, which makes it unique. And then we went on to giggle and talk for another hour, pretty much. We had the best time talking. And I hope, I hope that gives you a little, you know, if you are business averse, as I am, I hope it gives you a little um, leg up in, in feeling like, you know, maybe that thing you've been thinking about doing, maybe you really can do it because there is support out there. And, and people like Tara are just wonderful and generous with their thoughts and their time. And, uh, and the Starship people are as well. Now, Starship is only open for registration once a month so that um, it can kind of stay contained so that you don't have new voices coming in all the time, which kind of would throw everybody off because you wouldn't necessarily know who people were. This way you kind of get introduced and you get to meet people and, um, and become part of a, a really large, supportive community of crafty awesomeness. And speaking of awesomeness, Gulliver. Well, as last we left our intrepid explorer, uh, you may recall that, that Gulliver has gone over and helped Blifescu and um, gotten himself into a bit of hot water with his nemesis, 
nemeses, there's more than one, in, uh, in Lilliput. And as you might be able to feel, that indicates, once the trouble starts, that indicates he's going to need an escape plan. And he doesn't, he doesn't get out yet, but you do start to see the writing on the wall in this chapter much more clearly than, than before. Not the least of which, of course, is, is him being accused of having an affair with the Lilliputian wife of um, Flimnap, who is uh, the stand-in for uh, Walpole. There, there are a couple terms that I want to make sure you know, um, just because it, it'll make a lot of things make more sense. You've heard Swift use this term before, and I actually think I mentioned it before, but it, it's going to keep coming up. Gulliver will continue to talk about the meanness of his condition or his mean status. And it's, uh, it's him indicating that he is not royalty. The word mean does not mean <laughs> what it means now. It's, you know, he's poorer than the rich people and the royalty. And, um, and social class-wise, he's at a lower status than these other people. But it's also something that we've seen before in books that we've read. There's a, a certain literary convention, and I, I think it was a societal one as well, to, um, <laughs> especially if you are in the middle or lower classes, to speak of the virtue of the middle and lower classes, that, you know, we're not rich, but at least we're good people, which is also a really good way to control people. You know, if, if being rich means that you are therefore a bad person, then why would you ever work to improve your condition? That would be silly. You wouldn't want to be a bad person. So it's, it's a, kind of a, a self-defeating, self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing, I guess. Um, the other thing that you are going to hear about is, uh, is uh, someone coming to visit uh, Gulliver and this, is, this has also been mentioned before, in a close chair, C-L-O-S-E. This is an enclosed chair, like a, like a litter, um, except the, that actually the one time I remember seeing this, although it didn't have curtains on it, it was open to the air. Um, if you see the movie 1776, this is the film version of the stage play. It's a musical, it's goofy, but it also as I think I've mentioned before on the podcast, actually is very well researched. And the things that the men say on the floor of the Continental Congress um, are all based on letters and diaries of the actual men who were there. So, goofy movie, sure. But Ben Franklin is delivered, as he often was, in a close chair. It was uh, carried by two men. Uh, it had, you know, like two by fours across the base. And then it was a little enclosed chair, like a photo booth side, you know, small. And um, Franklin used it specifically because of his gout. It allowed him to be carried up the stairs and, uh, and carried around. And of course, I think he probably liked having people watch him because <laughs> there goes the famous Dr. Franklin. And, uh, and there indeed he went. Well, it also would provide you with privacy if you had the curtains down and didn't want anyone to know who you were and where you were going. And that is how the close chair will be used in our story today. Now, Aaron Ziegler in today's episode does a remarkable job with uh, both having to be a Lilliputian, which I commend him for, and also to make sense of and give life to what could otherwise be a series of uh, 
not boring, but um, laborious articles and le- like legal articles. Know this going in. Each one of them represents a different issue in the real world. We already know about Oxford and Bolingbroke and uh, the way the Whigs persecuted them uh, after the, the War of Spanish Secession. There is some discussion back and forth about whether Gulliver urinating on the Queen's Palace had something to do with the Tories being favorable towards the Catholic Church at that point. I really have not come across anything that makes that clear to me. If you know of anything, please put it in the comments at craftlit.com because I think everyone would be fascinated to hear your thoughts. So, so almost all of the articles have, have some connection to Oxford and Bolingbroke and the different things that they were accused of. The, the wonderful satire that occurs in this chapter is on the lines of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And <laughs> not to spoil anything further, I am not going to make any more comment and tell the flip side because it's just, it's really good. Just how about this? Know going into this that nothing ascribed to the emperor was made up. It all in some way or another came out of George I's mouth in his day and uh, and Swift is having issues with that. There. I think that'll do. So I'm going to turn you over to the capable hands of Aaron Ziegler reading chapter seven out of part one of Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Chapter seven. The author, being informed of a design to accuse him of high treason, makes his escape to Blefuscu, his reception there. Before I proceed to give an account of my leaving this kingdom, it may be proper to inform the reader of a private intrigue which had been for two months forming against me. I had been hitherto all my life a stranger to courts, for which I was unqualified by the meanness of my condition. I had indeed heard and read enough of the disposition of great princes and ministers, but never expected to have found such terrible effects of them in so remote a country, governed, as I thought, by very different maxims from those in Europe. When I was just preparing to pay my attendance on the Emperor of Blefuscu, a considerable person at court, to whom I had been very serviceable at a time when he lay under the highest displeasure of his imperial majesty, came to my house very privately at night in a close chair, and without sending his name, desired admittance. The chairmen were dismissed. I put the chair with his lordship in it into my pocket, and giving orders to a trusty servant to say I was indisposed and gone to sleep, I fastened the door of my house, placed the chair on the table according to my usual custom, and sat down by it. After the common salutations were over, Observing his lordship's countenance full of concern and inquiring into the reason, he desired I would hear him with patience in a matter that highly concerned my honour and my life. His speech was to the following effect, for I took notes of it as soon as he left me. "'You are to know,' said he, "'that several committees of council have been lately called in the most private manner on your account.' and it is but two days since His Majesty came to a full resolution. You are very sensible that Skyrish Bogolam, Galbet, or High Admiral, hath been your mortal enemy almost ever since your arrival. His original reasons I know not, 
but his hatred is much increased since your great success against Blefuscu, by which his glory as admiral is obscured. This lord, in conjunction with Flimnap, the high treasurer, whose enmity against you is notorious on account of his lady, Limtok, the general, Lalcon, the chamberlain, and Balmuff, the grand justiciary, have prepared articles of impeachment against you for treason and other capital crimes. This preface made me so impatient, being conscious of my own merits and innocence, that I was going to interrupt, when he entreated me to be silent, and thus proceeded. Out of gratitude for the favours you have done me, I procured information of the whole proceedings, and a copy of the articles, wherein I venture my head for your service. Articles of impeachment against Quimbus Flestrin, the Man Mountain. Article 1. Whereas, by a statute made in the region of His Imperial Majesty, Caelan de Far Plune, it is enacted that whoever shall make water within the precincts of the royal palace shall be liable to the pains and penalties of high treason, notwithstanding the said Quimbus Flestrin in open breach of the said law under colour of extinguishing the fire kindled in the apartments of His Majesty's most dear imperial consort, did maliciously, traitorously, and devilishly, by discharge of his urine, put out the said fire kindled in the said apartment, lying and being within the precincts of the said royal palace, against the statute in that case provided, etc., against the duty, etc. Article 2. That the said Quimbus Flestrin, having brought the imperial fleet of Blefuscu into the royal port, and being afterwards commanded by his imperial majesty to seize all the other ships of the said empire of Blefuscu, and reduce that empire to a province to be governed by a viceroy from hence, and to destroy and put to death not only all the big Endian exiles, but likewise all the people of that empire who would not immediately forsake the big Endian heresy. He, the said Flestrin, like a false traitor against his most auspicious serene imperial majesty, did petition to be excused from the said service upon pretense of unwillingness to force the consciences or destroy the liberties and lives of an innocent people. Article 3 that whereas certain ambassadors arrived from the court of Blefuscu to sue for peace in his majesty's court, he, the said Flestrin, did like a false traitor aid, abet, comfort, and divert the said ambassadors, although he knew them to be servants of a prince who was lately an open enemy to his imperial majesty and in open war against his said majesty. Article 4. That the said Quimbus Flestrin, contrary to the duty of a faithful subject, is now preparing to make a voyage to the court and empire of Blefuscu, 
for which he hath received only verbal license from his imperial majesty, and under the colour of the said license doth falsely and traitorously intend to take the said voyage, and thereby to aid, comfort, and abet the emperor of Blefuscu, so late an enemy, and in open war with his imperial majesty aforesaid. There are some other articles, but these are the most important of which I have read you an abstract. In the several debates upon this impeachment, it must be confessed that His Majesty gave many marks of his great lenity, often urging the services you had done him and endeavouring to extenuate your crimes. The treasurer and admiral insisted that you should be put to the most painful and ignominious death by setting fire on your house at night, and the general was to attend with twenty thousand men armed with poisoned arrows to shoot you on the face and hands. Some of your servants were to have private orders to strew a poisonous juice on your shirts and sheets, which would soon make you tear your own flesh and die in the utmost torture. The general came into the same opinion, so that for a long time there was a majority against you, but his majesty resolving, if possible, to spare your life, at last brought off the chamberlain. Upon this incident, Reldresol, principal secretary for private affairs, who always approved himself your true friend, was commanded by the emperor to deliver his opinion, which he accordingly did, and therein justified the good thoughts you have of him. He allowed your crimes to be great, but that still there was room for mercy, the most commendable virtue in a prince, and for which his majesty was so justly celebrated. He said the friendship between you and him was so well known to the world that perhaps the most honourable board might think him partial. However, in obedience to the command he had received, he would freely offer his sentiments, that if his majesty, in consideration of your services, and pursuant to his own merciful disposition, would please to spare your life, and only give order to put out both your eyes, he humbly conceived that by this expedient justice might in some measure be satisfied, and all the world would applaud the lenity of the emperor, as well as the fair and generous proceedings of those who have the honour to be his counsellors, that the loss of your eyes would be no impediment to your bodily strength, by which you might still be useful to his majesty, that blindness is an addition to courage by concealing dangers from us, that the fear you had for your eyes was the greatest difficulty in bringing over the enemy's fleet, and it would be sufficient for you to see by the eyes of the ministers, since the greatest princes do no more. This proposal was received with the utmost disapprobation by the whole board. Bogolam, the admiral, could not preserve his temper, but rising up in fury, said he wondered how the secretary durst presume to give his opinion for preserving the life of a traitor, that the services you had performed were, by all true reasons of the state, the great aggravation of your crimes, that you 
who were able to extinguish the fire by discharge of urine in Her Majesty's apartment, which he mentioned with honor, might at another time raise an inundation by the same means to drown the whole palace, and the same strength which enabled you to bring over the enemy's fleet might serve upon the first discontent to carry it back, that he had good reason to think you were a big Indian in your heart, and as treason begins in the heart before it appears in overt acts, so he accused you as a traitor on that account, and therefore insisted you should be put to death. The treasurer was of the same opinion. He showed to what straits his majesty's revenue was reduced by the charge of maintaining you, which would soon grow insupportable, that the secretary's expedient of putting out your eyes was so far from being a remedy against this evil that it would probably increase it, as it is manifest from the common practice of blinding some kind of fowl, after which they fed the faster and grew sooner fat, that his sacred majesty and the council, who are your judges, were in their own consciences fully convinced of your guilt, which was a sufficient argument to condemn you to death, without the formal proofs required by the strict letter of the law. But his imperial majesty, fully determined against capital punishment, was graciously pleased to say that since the council thought the loss of your eyes too easy a censure, some other may be inflicted hereafter, and your friend, the secretary, humbly desired to be heard again in answer to what the treasurer had objected concerning the great charge his majesty was at in maintaining you, said that his excellency, who had the sole disposal of the emperor's revenue, might easily provide against this evil by gradually lessening your establishment, by which, for want of sufficient food, you would grow weak and faint, and lose your appetite, and consequently decay and consume in a few months. Neither would the stench of your carcass be then so dangerous when it should become more than half diminished, and immediately upon your death five or six thousand of his majesty's subjects might, in two or three days, cut your flesh from your bones, take it away by cartloads, and bury it in distant parts to prevent infection, leaving the skeleton as a monument of admiration to posterity. Thus, by the great friendship of the secretary, the whole affair was compromised. It was strictly enjoined that the project of starving you by degrees should be kept a secret, but the sentence of putting out your eyes was entered on the books, none dissenting except Bogolam the admiral, who, being a creature of the empress, was perpetually instigated by her majesty to insist upon your death, she having borne perpetual malice against you on account of that infamous and illegal method you took to extinguish the fire in her apartment. In three days, your friend, the secretary, will be directed to come to your house and read before you the articles of impeachment, and then to signify the great lenity and favor of his majesty and council, whereby you are only condemned to the loss of your eyes, which his majesty doth not question you will gratefully and humbly submit to, 
and twenty of His Majesty's surgeons will attend in order to see the operation well performed by discharging very sharp pointed arrows into the balls of your eyes as you lie on the ground. I leave you to your prudence what measures you will take, and to avoid suspicion I must immediately return in as private a manner as I came. His lordship did so, and I remained alone under many doubts and perplexities of mind. It was a custom introduced by this prince and his majesty, very different as I have been assured from the practices of former times, that after the court had decreed any cruel execution either to gratify the monarch's resentment or the malice of a favorite, the emperor always made a speech to his whole council, expressing his great lenity and tenderness as qualities known and confessed by all the world. This speech was immediately published through the kingdom, nor did anything terrify the people so much as those encomiums on His Majesty's mercy, because it was observed that the more these praises were enlarged and insisted on, the more inhuman was the punishment, and the sufferer more innocent. Yet as to myself, I must confess, having never been designed for a courtier, either by my birth or education, I was so ill a judge of things that I could not discover the lenity and favor of this sentence, but conceived it, perhaps erroneously, rather to be rigorous than gentle. I sometimes thought of standing my trial, for although I could not deny the facts alleged in the several articles, yet I hope they would admit of some extenuations. But having in my life perused many state trials, which I ever observed to terminate as the judges thought fit to direct, I durst not rely on so dangerous a decision in so critical a juncture and against such powerful enemies. Once I was strongly bent upon resistance, for while I had liberty, the whole strength of that empire could hardly subdue me, and I might easily with stones pelt the metropolis to pieces. But I soon rejected that project with horror, by remembering the oath I had made to the emperor, the favors I had received from him, and the high title of Nardak he conferred upon me. Neither had I so soon learned the gratitude of courtiers to persuade myself that his majesty's present severities acquitted me of all past obligations. At last I fixed upon a resolution, for which it is probable I may incur some censure, and not unjustly. For I confess, I owe the preserving mine eyes, and consequently my liberty, to my own great rashness and want of experience, because if I had known the nature of princes and ministers, which I have since observed in many other countries, and their methods of treating criminals less obnoxious than myself, I should with great alacrity and readiness have submitted to so easy a punishment. But hurried on by the precipitancy of youth, and having his imperial majesty's license to pay my attendance upon the emperor of Blefuscu, I took this opportunity, before the three days were elapsed, to send a letter to my friend, the secretary, signifying my resolution of setting out that morning for Blefuscu, pursuant to the leave I had got, and without waiting for an answer, I went to that side of the island where our fleet lay. I seized a large man-of-war, tied a cable to the prow, and lifting up the anchors, I stripped myself, put my clothes, together with my coverlet, which I carried under my arm, into the vessel, and drawing it after me, between wading and swimming, arrived at the royal port of Blefuscu, where the people had long expected me. They lent me two guides to direct me to the capital city, which is of the same name. I held them in my hands until I came within two hundred yards of the gate, and desired them to signify my arrival to one of the secretaries, 
and let him know I there awaited his majesty's commands. I had an answer in about an hour that his majesty, attended by the royal family and the great officers of the court, was coming out to receive me. I advanced a hundred yards, the emperor and his train alighted from their horses, the empress and ladies from their coaches, and I did not perceive they were in any fright or concern. I lay on the ground to kiss his majesty's and the empress's hand. I told his majesty that I was come according to my promise, and with the license of the emperor, my master, to have the honor of seeing so mighty a monarch, and to offer him any service in my power, consistent with my duty to my own prince, not mentioning a word of my disgrace, because I had hitherto no regular information of it, and might suppose myself wholly ignorant of any such design. Neither could I reasonably conceive that the emperor would discover the secret while I was out of his power, wherein, however, it soon appeared I was deceived. I shall not trouble the reader with the particular account of my reception at this court, which was suitable to the generosity of so great a prince, nor of the difficulties I was in for want of a house and bed, being forced to lie on the ground, wrapped up in my coverlet. All right, so... <laughs> poor Gulliver. And I do not believe this will be the last time that I utter the words, poor Gulliver. First off, uh, going back to the articles. So he was, you know, about to be accused of all of these things. And his little friend came in to warn him that this was about to happen. But, um, but I loved all the ways that they said that they were going to punish him. Now, remember that fraud is punished more harshly in Lilliput than practically anything else. So it is interesting that the people of Lilliput who don't like Gulliver are so willing to risk accusing him of these things. And, and part of it is because it's kind of hard to deny that he did these things. He did, in fact, urinate on the queen's chambers. He did however, do that to put out a fire that would have destroyed the entire palace. So they're, they're not entirely lying, but they are only pointing out the negatives. It's interesting to me that the, the list of ways that they had discussed killing him, uh, poisoned arrows and, and that long list of things, one of the things in there was um, to strew a poisonous juice on your shirts and sheets, which would soon make you tear your own flesh and die in the utmost torture. Okay, I did not know this before. This is how Hercules died. Uh, a shirt soaked in uh, the poisoned blood of a centaur, Nessus, was sent to him. The shirt stuck to him. The poison entered his blood, and he wound up ripping off the shirt and his skin in the process, and that's how he died. Huh. So it, that was not without precedent. It's just kind of an interesting old, old precedent. And uh, I thought kind of interesting that Swift threw that in because I'm willing to bet he knew that story. And then, you know, uh, Reldrasol, Gulliver's actual friend, pipes up and says, hey, instead of killing him, why don't we just put his eyes out? Lovely. They th the, the conventional wisdom on that is, is that the putting out the eyes is... Um, a metaphor for what did happen to Oxford and Bolingbroke. They had to forfeit their titles and their estates. So that meant they had no, no income and, and at that time really no way of making an income without, uh, without their property. So that would have been like, you know, well, we're going to leave you alive, but 
you'll probably die a slow death now that you have no other way to support yourself. So there was that. And, and then the, the full letter of the law, the formal proof, they're going to convict him in absentia, probably, with, without full proof. And I don't know, the first thing that came to my mind was that quote from Ben Franklin, uh, they who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. But that's, that's not really where Swift is going with this, is it? It's the, the people who are, are willing to bend the rules uh, in their favor, especially when it comes to punishing someone or, or killing someone, um, that's, not, that's not such a good position to hold. It's like watching the ethics committee stuff going back and forth between the two political parties in, in Congress. It's like, well, now we're in power, so we're going to convene an ethics committee against all of y'all. And then they flip-flop, and then it's new ethics committee stuff being convened against the other side. And it's, it's just not such a great road to walk down or to start walking down, which is part of what Swift is saying. He is also making comment on um, James II, who was convicted on uh, weak evidence and by the quote-unquote waiving of the strict letter of the law. So there, there actually was an event in relatively recent history for, for Swift that um, included somebody very high up getting nailed on uh, kind of, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't go so far as to say spurious charges, maybe spurious charges, but certainly not as strictly defined. And isn't it interesting to see this kind of thing happening back then? Because we still talk about stuff like this. I'm so blown away by Swift. Now, one of the specific things that really did happen, and I didn't want to bring it up until, uh, until after, the great lenity and or leniency and tenderness as qualities known and confessed by all the world. Okay, this is something that George the First did. He, uh, when he went after the Jacobites, people who'd been in power before him, he put out the order of execution on them. But he required Parliament to praise him for his mercy and kindness in the writ that condemned these men to death. Lovely, right? So, you know, oh, thank you so much for only killing me. <laughs> that was so kind of you. I'm so appreciative. It's, it's crazy. And I think Swift had an easy, that was an easy shot to make in, uh, in this chapter in particular. One of the more convoluted sentences in this um, is uh, where Gulliver says, but having in my life perused many state trials, which I ever observed to terminate as the judges thought fit to direct. I saw them end not based on any kind of evidence, but based on the judge's own discretion or prejudices. I durst not rely on so dangerous a decision in so critical a juncture and against such powerful enemies. So he knew that if it went to trial, he would not get a fair trial. And, um, and that actually was a, a real thing. There was an actual guy, his name was George Jeffries, and he was notorious as a particularly cruel judge. And, um, and I mentioned, I think in the, the last podcast, there was the whole Titus Oates um, Catholic conf- 
conflagration. It was insane. And um, this guy, George Jeffries, was the judge in that. He not only didn't listen to the Catholic defendants, he excoriated them. He didn't give them an inch. And they were killed. And it was because of this guy. He didn't even listen to the evidence. Didn't matter. When James II, who's Catholic, became the king, it was then Protestant rebels who were on top trial. And Jeffreys did the same thing that way. Now, after James II lost his throne, Jeffreys was imprisoned in the tower and he died there. So, uh, a good end to a bad man, uh, evidently. But that, that kind of um, hanging judge attitude, big in this time and uh, sadly big in this time. And then the last thing that's actually historically accurate is uh, Gulliver running away to Plifescu. Its uh, precedent was set by Bolingbroke. Uh, Oxford stayed in England and uh, eventually the charges against him were dropped, but he, he never got his life back. And uh, Bolingbroke went to France. And, uh, and therein lies the parallel of Gulliver and his most recent trip. I love that he lays down on the ground to kiss their hands. <laughs> it's a great image. And next week, we will pick up with chapter eight, which is the last chapter of part one. We are almost done with the Lilliput section of Gulliver's Travels. We are one quarter of the way finished with the book. Ha! Huh. Who knew? We are so awesome. Um, and on that note, I will leave you. I'm going to go back to my socks and knit away. And I hope you have a great marvelous prosperous week i hope i have a great marvelous and prosperous week too and i will talk to you very soon you take care bye there are many ways to listen to craftlet you can listen on your smartphone via the stitcher radio app you can subscribe free through itunes or you can download and listen to the iphone itouch and android app where you'll receive occasional extras for the show Craftlet is supported in a number of ways. Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, volume two, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlet.com. Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories from the heart and home. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative publishing books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. If you would like to help support the show, please know there are various ways to donate. And all of them help keep Craftlet and Just the Books free and available to you whenever you feel the need for a good story. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>